First Kings chapter 21. I remember this story a few years ago. I cut it out of a newspaper as a teenager, so we're talking several years ago, and, and used it in sermons before. But what this group of kids did was they took the stop sign down at a, at a busy intersection by their house, thinking it's going to be really funny to see what people do. And they watched it for a while. They stood there and they watched it. Uh, just to see what would happen. And several people went ahead and stopped because they were used to stopping there for years. You know what it's like, uh, a familiar route that you're with. Even if they take the stop signs away, you know that they're supposed to be there. So they stopped anyway and they thought that was funny. There were some other people who it was a familiar route to, but they didn't see the stop sign, but they thought maybe it should be. They slowed down and turned it into a yield. But it wasn't long before tragedy happened and there was a terrible accident. People died at that intersection. Uh, because a stop sign is there for a reason. That's what they learn. Stop signs uh, are there for a purpose. Now, I'm not as frustrated by stop signs as I am about traffic lights because they change. And because if you'd just gotten on the road two seconds before, you would have made it. And it changes just as you're coming up to it, and you have to stop. And those are frustrating. But a stop sign is there. It will be there next week. It was there last week. It was there last month. It'll be there two months from now. You know full well that stop sign is there. It's always going to be there. It was chosen to be there because it was a, a safety precaution. There are a number of things you can do when you face a stop sign. And probably my guess is... Everybody in here has done all of them. How many have ever run a stop sign? Just be honest. Okay, the first two stop signs I ran were when I was taking the test for driving test for a thing. And, and the first time I ran it, didn't even see it. And the guy said, I'm flunking you. I said, and he said, you don't want to know why? I said, no. He said, you ran a stop sign. Well, I got the same guy the next time and I ran the same stop sign. And he said, you know why I'm, I'm guessing I ran a stop sign. I said, could we go a different route next time, right? The so third time's a charm. But, but there are other times maybe I've done this and sometimes uh, not even consciously. But you come up to a stop sign, you got some choices about what you're going to do about it. In our text tonight, we're going to see what one guy did. The reading was well done just a moment ago. Naboth has this vineyard. It's been in his family since the conquest. And if you read the law of Moses, the, the laws pertaining to land, land was sacred. We're talking holy. And when you got, <coughs> excuse me, when you got your inheritance of the land, you were to keep it. This was serious business. You were to associate the land with God himself as the giver of the land. And in fact, if you ever had to sell it, you know what Jubilee was? Does anybody remember what Jubilee was? Every 50 years, the land reverted back to the original owners. Every 50, it's not supposed to, you're not supposed to transaction the land out of your clan and your family. It's supposed to stay in your family. So if you get in really trouble, you might have to sell the land, but come Jubilee, you get it back because God wants this land to be associated with himself as the giver of it. That's how serious this was. So Naboth took seriously his land. And when, when Ahab comes to him and says, I want to buy it, this is dear to his heart, and this is from his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. He doesn't want to sell it. He's, the, he's one who knows exactly how important this is. Now, this is a little strange because Ahab is king in Samaria. 
this is the land of Jezreel. This is another city altogether. So Ahab has a palace and the capital in Samaria, but he also has a nice home in Jezreel. And right outside of his home is this wonderful vineyard that Naboth has. And he babies it and he nurtures it. It's a nice looking vineyard. And he's thinking, man, I could really increase the value and increase the attractiveness of my property if I just get Naboth's stuff down there. But Naboth won't sell it. He refuses to sell it. And this makes Ahab upset. But what I want to do is I want you to understand this. is What what I'm really impressed is he didn't run the stop sign. He pouted, but he didn't run the stop sign. So it says, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and would eat no food. It wasn't a gracious thing, but he accepted God's no. He accepted the man's no. He can't do it without stealing or doing something to this man that is, that is un, unlawful. And so he is, he is accepting the no that he's been given. And none of us like this. None of us like being told no when we really want something, drawn to getting something, but we hear God's no. How often does God's no impact your life? If you think about this spiritually, you, you, you really would love young people, even married people. You really want, you'd love some physical time with that woman or that man, but you know that they're not married to you or they're not married at all. And because of that, God's boundaries are there and God says no to you. How do you do with God's no? You really, really want to go to that website. God says no. How do you handle the no? You really want to give that girl a piece of your mind. She was mean to you. Give her a piece of your mind. And God says, blows the whistle, says, no. What do you do? You have this chance to take vengeance and the opportunity, the beautiful opportunity laid like a platter in front of you, and you could easily do it. This, this thing comes up to you and confronts you, and you are one lie away from getting out of trouble. But God says, no. What do you do? This thing you really want, but you can't afford, but you could, you could technically steal it. You could get away with it, but you hear God's emphatic no. And your body comes up with all sorts of, your body and your mind comes up with all sorts of arguments for why you should be allowed to run this stop sign, why it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be there. Why is it there? That's a stupid place for a stop sign, but God's stop sign is there. It's in spiritual concrete. What do you do? Have you run across God's stop sign? What do you do when you get there? I'm rather proud of Ahab, to be honest with you right here. Can you hear him making some arguments? Well, I'm the king. I can get whatever I want. I'm the most powerful man in the land. In fact, isn't that what Samuel said the kings would do? When Samuel said, hey, I'm going to give you a king just like all the other nations, but he's going to take your property. He's going to take your kids. He's going to tax you. That's what he's going to do. And Ahab had a chance to do that. Rules don't apply to the king, do they? But here Ahab takes a no. I remember when Eve was given a no. You remember when Eve was given a no? And that fruit, you know, it put in our head this idea of what that fruit's going to do. And she looks at it, oh, it is good. Well, yeah, but there's a million other trees in the garden that look that good. They're all perfect. It's a perfect world after all. It's not the only one, but somehow this, this serpent has, has caused you to look at this one tree. And for some reason, it looks a little shinier than all the others. 
and you say, well, you know, it looks good for food, and it is just like all the others, and it's good for making me wise, how do you see that? You just start to believe it. And you know what that means? You start to suspect that the only reason God says no is he doesn't want you to have the wonderful things that's going to give you. You start questioning the nature of God and his, and his motives for the law. And when you throw out not only God's word and command, but also God's, and God's nature and character, you'll do anything and you'll run any stop sign. But Ahab stopped. I'm impressed. I, I, I would expect him to do something radical. But, but I do wish, I do wish he'd have handled this a little more gracefully. Notice what he does here. And by the way, if you'll be ready to look back at verse 20, you see this is becoming a pattern. It says that he was vexed and sullen. We don't use these words. He was vexed and sullen because of what Naboth had said to him. And so he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and he wouldn't eat any food and I'm just going to throw a hissy fit. That's what he did. Yeah, he stopped at the stop sign, but he hit the steering wheel and he pouted and he cussed a good one because he didn't like that stop sign. Well, he at least stopped. He at least stopped. But just like in chapter 20, look at the last words of chapter 20. When he was reprimanded, well, he went to his house vexed and sullen. He was throwing a hissy fit, pouting. Handling his frustration. This is not very becoming, and this is not very mature. And here's the thing for us as Christians. Not only should we accept the no, but we should handle it with grace. We should handle it with grace. I am a little like Ahab this way. I'm going to give you a little bit of revelation. I can throw a hissy fit. I can pout. I might obey, but I won't obey with grace. And I won't obey with maturity. I believe it's important to handle self-denial with faith, right? I think that to deny myself for no reason is hard, but to deny myself because God said no, I need to handle that with trust. I need to trust a God who has a reason for this no and that he's protecting me because of this no he put in place. He put the stop sign there to save me from trouble. That's what Psalm 19 says. But what he does here is he protests. You say no to your kid. You got to be quiet in church. And I was like, you heard this four times this morning. Do you know what that kid is doing? Protesting you. Protesting your no. And there's a time, I understand some of that, but as they get older, they need to quit protesting you and start trusting you and start accepting it. As part of maturity and understanding. This is hard to understand sometimes, especially for a kid. I get that. But as we experience God better, we need to take it with faith. Now, here's the thing. He handles this no passive-aggressively. Here's one bad way to handle your no. And this is what happens. When you handle a no, you come up to a stop sign. Is that you get resentful about it. Resentment builds. I take note of this. I honored the no, I stopped at God's stop sign, but it registers with me. What I really wanted, I'm missing out on, and I mark it down. I mark it down as a martyr. Look what I did. I cooperated, I sacrificed, and this is what I missed out on. And we start taking on a martyr complex, and we pat ourselves on the back about this. God's so lucky to have me, an obedient servant, but we remember it. We remember it, and the resentment builds from it. 
and ends up playing a game with us. Once I get enough of these marks, I earn the right to run the stop sign. Once I've done this enough and I've proven my allegiance, I have a right to an exception clause. That's what resentment will do. After five, six, seven times in obeying the no, we will just run the stop sign thinking that we've earned that privilege. I I think of Joseph this way who didn't think this way. Joseph didn't just resist Potiphar's wife once. It said she came to him over and over and over and over. It'd be so easy to rationalize that away and just once give in, but he doesn't. He keeps it going. He doesn't let the resentment cause him to mark it down and think he's earned an exception to it. Here's a second thing that can happen with our no. And and that is, we get passive-aggressive with it. He pitches a hissy fit, Ahab does, before his wife, Ahab's. uh, I don't know the word for it. Henpecked? Heard that one before? I don't know if I'm supposed to say that in a pulpit or not. And I'll find out later on whether I was supposed to say it or not. I guarantee you. Pitches this hissy fit. His wife notices it. And so she inquires. Notice that Jezebel, his wife, came out to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed? You're not eating honey. And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else. If it, and if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. He wouldn't let me have his vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Now, are you king or not? Aren't you king? You just get up and eat, honey, and Jezzy will take care of this for you. That's what she says. You just be cheerful. I'll get you that vineyard, honey. I kind of think that's what Ahab was angling for anyway. This kind of, listen, I got to tell you this. Can I tell you this? Kids and dads, listen, I don't see this with wives, okay? Kids and dads, when we act childish like this, it is not only unattractive, but it is so, so destructive to the respect of other people. It is ugly. He spits out the story in anger, and, and, and Jezebel mocks him. You just eat your food, right? I'm going to fix this for you. And she starts mothering him. Oh, to see a husband that has to be mothered. Oh, it is ugly. Please don't call your wife mom. Please don't call your wife mom. I just, it creeps me out. It creeps me out. She's not your mama, right? This is an emasculated man who is being handled, and he seems to like it, right? An emasculated man who, who's being handled, and he, he, I think he's come to get used to this, and he's thinking that he can kind of trigger her into fixing it for him. Like a conditioned puppy, you just eat your little food and smile, and I'm going to fix this for you. I wish he would have handled his obedience better. And I wish she would have handled herself better. Here's another, just here's for your wife. Teenagers, listen to this very carefully. So get off the cell phones and listen to this for a minute. When God says in Genesis 2 that the wife is to be a help meet, it doesn't mean help him do whatever he wants. You marry someone who will help you meet God's expectation of you. She is to help you become more holy. 
What Jezebel should have done was distract his mind, was to reason with him and say, now, listen, he had a right to tell you no. This is a stop sign from him and from God. We don't run this stop sign. We've got plenty, dear. We've got plenty, and we can get other things in different places. This doesn't need to be what we do. Let's just forget this. You don't need to, she doesn't need to reprimand him. She needs to reason with him spiritually. I want a wife who will help me get to heaven. I give her permission. Listen, I give her permission to sometimes stand in my way and help me to be who I should be rather than who I am. I've got to have her be that way because, listen, I can can come up with some stupid things and I can be so pouty and mopey and I can just be less than who I need to be and I need to be more and she helps me if I give her permission. Do not marry somebody who's not willing to honor God's stop sign with you. to reinforce God's stop sign with you. She didn't need to reprimand him. He may have been too sensitive for that, but she should have distracted him. Honor God's stop sign. So wives are to help husbands to be more holy, and sometimes that means going against the husband, and that's the greatest help meet you can give him. It's not the yes man, it's not the empowerment to anything you want, it's the empower to who you should be that God's called you to. But she doesn't, she runs the stop sign. I want you to notice how she does it. It's a deceitful, disgusting way. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, somehow got his seal. Did he know about it? I don't know, it doesn't really matter. But it's uh, got his name, sealed him with a seal, and she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived in Naboth and his city. She writes to the elders and leaders of the city, and this is what she says. Proclaim a fast, set Naboth as the head of the people, the uh, place of honor. Set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you've cursed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel sent word to them to do. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king, and they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones, and they sent to Jezebel, saying, He's dead. interesting thing I I can see her she's got a Phoenician background she's not Israelite in their minds the king could bend the law any way they wanted to so in her mind she says the king gets what he wants but she knows she's a queen in Israel so she decides there's got to be a way to do this cloaked under the protection of the law so she comes up with this neat thing that if you bring it in a court of law and everybody talks about it everybody'd say she fulfilled the law this was a man Uh, we have two witnesses because you cannot do this without two or three witnesses and so we came up with it fit everything in the law she messed with the law enough to cloak her true motives of getting rid of this guy it's ugly powerful people can use the law this way and you know what Christians can use the Bible this way You ever heard anybody do this with Scripture before? Listen, the the Bible is a dangerous thing if you only know the Bible words and you aren't living the Bible life. 
You can really do this. Let me give you some examples I've seen over my I, I was talking to Todd the other day, and he would do this to his sisters because he was supposed to be a loving gesture to his sisters, and he wasn't feeling loving, so he'd go up to them, and he'd hug them, but he'd hug them really tight. Mom and dad couldn't see it. T- almost hurt them, right? I'm doing the loving thing, but this is not really the loving thing. I'm doing this as a dagger in the back. There's daggers in men's smiles, right? I want you to hear this because you've, have you heard this story before? A woman is sick of her husband, can't stand him, and so she withholds herself sexually from him for years. And then one day he goes outside the marriage, and she goes, scriptural marriage, scriptural divorce, I can get rid of you because you cheated on me, ha ha, I've got a scriptural right. I don't even know what scriptural right means. I'm really questioning whether that is even a legitimate category. But you tell me that that woman who plotted that, who for years withheld herself, who broke her covenant day in and day out for years, and he steps out like that, you gonna tell me that's a biblical right? Something's wrong with this. Something is ugly all about that deal. And then you got people that will say something like, well, they'll do whatever they want to, and they'll say, Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Just throw out this verse that just trumps any kind of critique or correction. And you got those people who hear that rich language of prayer in Scripture, and they say, well, I prayed about this. This is the conclusion I came to, and I know it's right. Really? So prayer endorses anything that you bring into that prayer. We can use this with Scripture like this. Satan even quoted Scripture to Jesus, and it was in the context. It was just wrong. That's the kind of thing that she did. And so to finish this story, Jezebel takes this grape from Naboth's vineyard and puts it in a box, and she wraps it in paper and a bow and presents it to her man Ahab. That didn't really happen. I just added that to the story. See, if you can use Scripture any way you want to, I just threw something in. But it sounds like something she would do. She says, ta-da, the land is yours. He just happened to die this morning. Well, that's convenient. And, they, and Ahab doesn't ask a single question about it. He just gets up and he goes to that land. Verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, he's dead now. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose and he went down to the vineyard at Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. He just couldn't wait. And somebody met him there, someone he does not like. Last time he saw this guy was on top of Mount Carmel and whipped his tail. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, verse 17, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Ahab, Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone to take possession. And you say to him, here's what the Lord says, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. That's what I want you to tell him. And so Ahab said to Elijah when he saw him coming, have you found me, O my enemy? Oh yeah, he's your enemy, right, because God's your enemy. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. You have sold your soul. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut cut off from Ahab every male 
bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Any one of his people who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. This God, do you get it? God's ticked off. Interesting, though, Ahab actually repents. The only time he doesn't, he was the worst king there was, verse 25 says. But verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh. He fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his son. I'm going to commute the sentence one generation, God says. Now he gets his. Ahab dies in battle. Jezebel's thrown out the roof, or the, the, the second story of her house. She dies. The only thing left are the skull, the palms, and the feet. But their son, the last Ahabite king, dies. And his blood drains out on this exact spot of Naboth's vineyard. I find it weird because I can't imagine that this repentance is genuine, but God accepts it as that. I just want to wrap up by saying this. What, what do you do with stop signs? When God says, I don't want you doing this. I don't want you living this way. I've got boundaries around your bed. What should we do at stop signs? And number one is when you approach a stop sign from God, stop. Don't look for a creative way around it. Don't listen to your own internal arguments. You will come up with some amazing rationalizations. You will come up with some profound arguments that almost sound enticing to you, but the problem is they're all trumped by God's no. It may be there. You're going to say that's unfair. That's a stupid rule. That's, that stop sign shouldn't be there except the no from God and stop when God tells you to stop. Number two, learn to trust God so completely you give him the benefit of the doubt for the purpose of that stop sign. Don't let yourself resent it. Keep track of the times where you were stopped by his no. Learn from Scripture and from watching life that God has a very, very good reason for putting that stop sign there. You might not know it right now. You might find out later, and you might not, and you might just learn to trust Him, that you don't understand why it's there, but you trust that it is. Your assessment of God's nature is very important. I trust when He puts it there, He has a good reason for it. Now, here's some signs that you're maturing in this. I wanted a whole line of this. Here's... You stop at a stop sign and you want to learn. You want to take this mind. Everything within me wants to run it. What do I need to do to mature in how I handle a no? Number one, do something constructive with the emotions about that stop sign. You're a teenager. Hormones raging. You really want to run a stop sign of physical affection with the opposite sex. What do you do? Cold shower might work. If you're married and there's websites you want to go look at because the wife isn't open to you right now, chew on the headboard a while. That won't hurt anything. That's good fiber. I'm serious about that. Find something constructive to do. Go get some exercise somewhere. Go to Andy's and eat some ice cream. 
Do something else, and do something else that doesn't nurture this resentment inside of you and cause it to build. I'm serious about all this, because inside of you is all this pent-up energy, and God just told you no, and you got to do something with that energy. Do something with it other than contemplate how to run that stop sign. That's what you need to do. Number two, don't lash out or pout. Please don't pout. Don't protest. Train yourself not to pout. It's very unbecoming. Number three, you pray to resign yourself. This is what Jesus did. Jesus wanted out at the garden. Jesus said, God, there's another exit to this garden over here. Can I go over here? I I know you've told me to stop here in the garden and wait for these people to come get me, but there's a way out. Can I take it? And God says, no, no. You know why he prays? He prays not to change God's mind. He prays to change his own heart. God, here's what I want to do, but I'm going to do your will. And so the time to wrestle between your will and God, when you know full well that you don't want to do what God wants you to do, prayer is, that's the time for prayer. That's the time when you need to use it as a way to defeat yourself. And then there's one more I can think of, and that is meditate on how this blesses you in the long run. Meditate is not something we like to do, but James 1 says, count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. These things that happen to you that are uncomfortable and displeasing, they are producing something in you. So think about this. This stop sign is making me stop. If I ran this stop sign, what might happen? Think about it. It's worth some reflection. That's things that you can do as you try to nurture an understanding of why God says. And here's the last thing I would give you as far as what to do at stop signs. Surround yourself with people who accept and honor God's stop signs too. Here's a great filter for who you should marry. And this is a hard one because I'm watching Abby and she's trying to find people like this and it's not going to be easy. I mean, she's at Harding and it's hard to find these folks. Find that guy or girl who loves God more than you. Not who will one day. That's not guaranteed. Who already does. Loves God more than you. And when you ask this girl to do something, to run a a stop sign, and she's willing to say no, and she's willing to tell you why you need to say no, Pay attention to her. That's the whole idea. You need to surround yourself because too many of us are resolved. We know God's no, but we hang around people who couldn't care less about God's no. They mock God's no. They think he's ridiculous. We watch movies constantly that put stuff in our minds about mocking God's no's, mocking God's boundaries, and we laugh it off. And here's the thing. We start laughing it off. Suddenly, we start mocking ourselves for abiding by that no, and we start making ourselves strengthen to run the stop sign. The stuff you read, the stuff you see, the music you listen to, the people you hang around— If you hang around people who disregard God's boundaries, you will too. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. He doesn't sit around people who make fun of God's conditions. Because what he knows is, pretty soon I will too. 
This covers your wife, your husband, your best friends. Surround yourself with people who will reinforce God's no in your life. I hope girls, you have girlfriends that when you got like, you know, I really want to do this, that they have enough. You know, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. That's Proverbs. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. When that friend is willing to go against you, standing with God, you make that person a friend for life. Those are the voices you need in your life. And so that's how you start. And here's all these things are illustrated in the story of Naboth Vineyard. Ahab was married to somebody who would run the stop signs even though he wouldn't. And because of that, he actually did on the coattails of his wife. Be careful who you marry. Be careful who you're around. Be careful who the influences are. Stop signs save lives. I believe that. And that's proven. That's why cities put them up. But only if you stop. They can't save your life if you don't stop. God's stop signs are for your good, but only if you stop. And if you learn to see his grace and his love in those stop signs, honor them and live well. That's what they're designed for, even when you suspect not. Maybe mostly when you expect not. Just trust him they're there for a reason and learn how to handle stop signs. This evening, if you need, have any spiritual needs that you need to give to the attention of this church, that we can help you in any way, make it known as we stand and as we sing together.